Please remain standing and turn in your Bibles, please, to 1 Kings chapter 20. 1 Kings chapter 20. We will work through the entire chapter, but in the interest of time, we will now read uh, verses 35 to 43. 1 Kings 20 and verse 35. Now, a certain man of the sons of the prophets said to his neighbor by the word of the Lord, Strike me, please. And the man refused to strike him. Then he said to him, Because you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, surely as soon as you depart from me, a lion shall kill you. And as soon as he left him, a lion found him and killed him. And he found another man and said, Strike me, please. So the man struck him, inflicting a wound. Then the prophet departed and waited for the king by the road and disguised himself with a bandage over his eyes. Now as the king passed by, he cried out to the king and said, Your servant went out into the midst of the battle, and there a man came over and brought a man to me and said, Guard this man. If by any means he is missing, your life shall be for his life, or else you shall pay a talent of silver. While your servant was busy here and there, he was gone. Then the king of Israel said to him, So shall your judgment be. You yourself have decided it. And he hastened to take the bandage away from his eyes. And the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. Then he said to him, Thus says the Lord, Because you have let slip out of your hand a man whom I appointed to utter destruction, Therefore your life shall go for his life, and your people for his people. So the king of Israel went to his house sullen and displeased, and came to Samaria. And may God add his richest blessing to the reading of this portion of his holy word. Will you pray with me, please? Again, our Father, we're thankful that you have spoken to us in your word. And we pray that you would speak to us now by the power of your Holy Spirit, that by your word, we would see our Lord Jesus Christ high and lifted up, that the sheep would hear the voice of the good shepherd, and hearing his voice that we would know him and follow him and offer our hearts to him promptly and sincerely, in spite of the inability and sin of the preacher. In Jesus' name, amen. Be seated, please. Ineptitude. There is not time for an introduction this morning. We must jump straight into the text to get through it in a reasonable length of time. This passage before us focuses specifically on the ineptitude of King Ahab. Obviously, he is a wicked and corrupt king, but you know, a wicked person can still be very capable. Here the text shows us that such is not the case with Ahab. Not only is he evil, he is also inept. And the message of this passage, our message today is that when Israel had an inept king, God's word was still true. And God's word is still true now. It will be till heaven and earth pass away. Now, let's look at the ineptitude of King Ahab and the truth and power of God's Word. First in this passage, we see 
an overwhelming enemy. An overwhelming enemy. Look, look back at verse 1. Now Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his forces together. Thirty-two kings were with him with horses and chariots, and he went up and besieged Samaria and made war against it. Then he sent messengers into the city to Ahab, king of Israel, and said to him, Thus says Ben-Hadad, Your silver and your gold are mine. Your loveliest wives and children are mine. Now you see what Israel was up against. Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, had his own army and had put together a coalition of 32 other kings and their armies. This overwhelming force had closed in on Samaria. In other words, Ahab and his forces were surrounded. So in verse 2, when Ben-Hadad sends the message that Israel's silver, gold, and loveliest wives, note the chauvinism there in Ben-Hadad, the loveliest wives and children are his, He's offering his terms of peace. (coughs) He's saying, you will become my vassal state. You can still have your own kingdom, feel like you have a, a, a fair bit of autonomy, but you will belong to me or I will annihilate you. Look at verse 4. And the king of Israel answered and said, My lord, O king, just as you say, I and all that I have are yours. Ahab accepts the deal immediately. But then Ben-Hadad reneges. You ever sold something? I mean, as soon as you held it out for sale, it was gone. And the buyer gladly paid What you asked for it, didn't try to talk you down. No counteroffer, no negotiating. What's the first thing that goes through your mind? Man, I didn't ask enough. I could have got way more for that. But your word is your bond. And you also have a legal obligation once an offer has been made and accepted to stick to it. I have a feeling that must have been what went through Ben-Hadad's mind. He didn't figure how eager Ahab would be to surrender. And he realized, I could have got a lot more out of him. He surrendered without a fight. And not being constrained by civilized Christian norms, Ben-Hadad simply broke his word. Look at verse 6. But I will send my servants to you tomorrow about this time, and they shall search your house and the houses of your servants, and it shall be that whatever is pleasant in your eyes, they will put it in their hands and take it. says, that's not enough. Now my terms have changed. We're going to search all your houses and take everything we want. Ahab then summons the elders of Israel, explains the situation, and they tell him to stand his ground. 
So then Ahab sends his messengers back to Ben-Hadad and says, all that you sent for your servant to do the first time I will do. But I can't do all that. So then Ben-Hadad sends a reply back to Ahab in verse 10. Look at it. The gods do so to me, and more also, if enough dust is left of scenario for a handful of each of the people who follow me. In other words, he's saying, when I get done, there won't even be any dust left. We're going to take everything you've got. Now, Ahab's response, as I see it, is the first glimmer of hope in this passage. Look at verse 11. So the king of Israel answered and said, Tell him, let not the one who puts on his armor boast like the one who takes it off. Now, bad as Ahab is, as hard-hearted and unteachable and just flat unmanly as he is, I can't read verse 11 without thinking that Elijah, as much as Ahab hated Elijah, despised him, Elijah must have rubbed off on Ahab just a little bit. Because what he said there in verse 11 sounds like something Elijah would have said. Let not the one who puts on his armor boast like the one who takes it off. In other words, you better wait till you've won before you start bragging. Then the die is cast. Verse 12. And it happened when Ben-Hadad heard this message as he and the kings were drinking at the command post that he said to his servants, get ready, and they got ready to attack the city. We see an overwhelming enemy coming against Israel. Secondly in this passage, we see an unexpected message. An unexpected message. Look at verse 13. Suddenly a prophet approached Ahab, king of Israel, saying, Thus says the Lord, Have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will deliver it into your hand today, and you shall know that I am a Lord, the Lord. Here's a good word. This is a positive word from the Lord to Ahab. To this point, we've never read that Ahab has once sought the Lord in all his life. He's not seeking the Lord's help at all. But the Lord sends a message for him. You will win. This overwhelming enemy, Ben-Hadad and his army and 32 other kings and all their armies, I will give them all into your hand today. And you will know that I and I alone am the Lord. Ahab doesn't deserve it. He deserves, the nation deserves defeat. But you see the Lord here is extending mercy to Ahab. Wicked Ahab. This man who has sat by and allowed his wife to carry out a comprehensive program to convert Israel from Jehovah to Baal, who has slaughtered 
the prophets of Jehovah trampled on his word and spat in his face. This man is being extended the mercy of Jehovah God from Jehovah God himself. This is truly an unexpected message, a message of grace. He wasn't looking for it. He wasn't seeking it. He had done nothing but trample the holy name of God into the mud and degradation and corruption that he and Jezebel had foisted on the land. And God showed him grace. We have a God who extends grace to the vilest of sinners. But we'll get back to that in a bit. But you see an unexpected message, an overwhelming enemy, an unexpected message. Thirdly in this passage, we see the true battle. The true battle. Look at verse 13 again. Suddenly a prophet approached Ahab, king of Israel, saying, Thus says the Lord, Have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will deliver it into your hand today, and you shall know that I am the Lord. You see what the prophet says, the first thing out of his mouth. Thus says the Lord. Now go back to verse 2. Look at the end of verse 2. Thus says Ben-Hadad. Look at verse 5. Then the messengers came back and said, Thus speaks Ben-Hadad. You know, it looks on the surface like this is a battle between a surrounded and incredibly outnumbered force and an overwhelming enemy. But what we really have here is the word of Ben-Hadad versus the word of the Lord. Thus says Ben-Hadad, thus says the Lord. Which one's going to win? This passage challenges us to see reality. You can look at the decline of the church in our culture, the lack of revival in our time, the hostility to historical Christianity, and you can despair. Or maybe more personally, you feel overwhelmed. Maybe under some pressure to cheat, fudge some numbers. Sleep with somebody. Cover something up. Maybe you feel backed into a corner. If you don't do it, you're going to pay. Israel, humanly speaking, was backed into a corner. This message is telling us to see the true battle for what it really is. Whatever situation 
you or I may be in, what it comes down to is the word of the Lord versus the word of man. You know what Martin Luther said? The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. That one little word is the word of God. And it will take down the prince of darkness. Now, lest we get to thinking that the fact that it's the word of the Lord that wins the battle, that that somehow lets us, lets us off the hook. Look at verse 14. So Ahab said, by whom? And he said, thus says the Lord, by the young leaders of the provinces. Then he said, who will set the battle in order? And he answered, you. You. By you, Ahab. Yes, it was all grace. Yes, it was the word of the Lord. But Ahab had to go out and fight. And believe it or not, he actually did. Look at verse 15. Then he mustered the young leaders of the provinces, and there were 232, and after them he mustered all the people, all the children of Israel, 7,000. Now skip to 19. Then these young leaders of the provinces went out of the city with the army which followed them, and each one killed his man. So the Syrians fled, and Israel pursued them. And Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, escaped on a horse with the cavalry. Then the king of Israel went out and attacked the horses and chariots and killed the Syrians with a great slaughter. They did it. James tells us we have to be doers of the word and not hearers only. It's the Lord's grace. It's the Lord's word that wins the battle. But we have to fight. It's been pointed out by many that Paul never said to work for your salvation, but he did say to work out your salvation. We don't work to get grace, but grace will put us to work once we get it. But the Lord did it. I will give it into your hand this day, and you will know that I am the Lord. And in this passage, the way it plays out, we see the Lord's hand in a most humorous way. Obeying the word of the Lord, Israel went on the attack first. The Syrians, who had such an overwhelming force, did not expect Israel to mount an offensive. They expected them to hold their defensive positions. That's conventional wisdom. So the Syrians were not ready. And Ben-Hadad and the 32 kings allied with him It says they were drinking. They were all drunk when the Israelites attacked. And they got word of the approaching army. And 
Look at the order Ben-Hadad gives. Look at verse 18. So he said, if they have come out for peace, take them alive. And if they have come out for war, take them alive. What? That doesn't make a lick of sense. Verse 18, the order he gives is totally nonsensical. If they've come out for war, take them alive. What? If they come out fighting, don't fight back. Just capture them. That's the liquor talking. He's too drunk to give a coherent order. The Lord worked all that out. You see, the Lord won the battle that day. So we see an overwhelming enemy, an unexpected message, the true battle. Fourthly in this passage, we see the true God. Look at verse 23. Then the servants of the king of Syria said to him, Their gods are gods of the hills. Therefore, they were stronger than we. But if we fight against them in the plain, surely we will be stronger than they. The Syrians... They're wondering, how could we have been routed by such an underdog? And here's the obvious explanation to a 9th century AD near, or 9th century BC near Eastern pagan. Israel had home field advantage. Israel's God is God down in the hill country, is, is God in the hill country. We need to draw them down into the valley where our gods reign. Then we'll get them. Look at verse 26. So it was in the spring of the year that Ben-Hadad mustered the Syrians and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. And the children of Israel were numbered and given provisions and they were against, went against them. Now the children of Israel encamped before them like two little flocks of goats while the Syrians filled the countryside. Isn't that a picture? The Syrians filled the countryside and Israel was like two little flocks of goats before the great army. Sounds a lot like what we saw on Mount Carmel. Like Elijah was outnumbered 450 prophets of Baal to one. Israel is two little flocks of goats before the Syrians. And then comes another word of the grace of God. Look at verse 28. Then a man of God came and spoke to the king of Israel and said, Thus says the Lord, because the Syrians have said, The Lord is God of the hills but he is not God of the valleys. Therefore, I will deliver all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And if you go on and read, they encamped against each other for seven days, and on the seventh day, Israel killed 100,000 Syrian soldiers in one day. And the rest of them 
ran away in verse 30. And it says, and then a wall fell on 27,000 of the men who were left. And Ben-Hadad fled and went into the city, into an inner chamber. Who knocked a wall down on those 27,000 men? Oh, the same one who knocked down the walls of Jericho. But the prophet in verse 28 says, this happened because the Syrians believed their gods could beat Jehovah in the valley. And God showed them, no, they cannot. None of us today would confess such a foolish notion that God is God in the hills but not in the valleys. But how many of us have looked at a situation, have looked at someone else's life, maybe even ourselves, and said, it's beyond repair. So what we're saying is, God can't work down in that valley. It's easy to think that South Carolina, the greatest place God ever made, one of the most evangelical states in the U.S., South Carolina, this is God's country. And then look at a Pacific Northwestern state or a New England state where there's hardly a percent of the population that's evangelical Christians. Where there is open hostility and ridicule toward the Bible and evangelical Christians. And think, God's not faring so well in those places as he is here. (coughs) The Syrians learned. He's not just God in the hills. He's God in the valley. We've all got a touch of the Syrian in us. And Jehovah showed them who was God everywhere that day. So we see an overwhelming enemy, an unexpected message, the true battle, the true God. And finally, fifthly and finally in this passage, we see missed opportunities. Now this passage concludes with Ahab missing two grand opportunities. Now (coughs) skip down to verse 34. We've got to wrap this up. So Ben-Hadad said to him, The cities which my father took from your father I'll restore, and you may set up marketplaces for yourself in Damascus as my father did in Samaria. Then Ahab said, I will send you away with this treaty. So he made a treaty with him and sent him away. Here's the first opportunity he missed. He let Ben-Hadad get away. It may have seemed reasonable, magnanimous, humane, whatever. But the point is that the Lord gave Ahab a chance at total victory and he blew it. He made a treaty with the Syrians. And at the risk of being simplistic, 
We cannot make a truce with sin in our hearts and lives. Remember the saying of the great John Owen, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. You can't make a treaty with it. Now in the last part, the passage we read back at the beginning, a fourth word of the Lord in this passage comes to Ahab. One of the prophets says to another prophet, strike me please, hit me. And he wouldn't strike him. And for this disobedience to the word of the Lord, a lion came out and killed him. And I'm sure that makes you ask all kinds of questions. And thankfully, I've left myself no time to deal with it, and we got to go eat dinner. But just remember this. A prophet is expected to recognize and obey the word of the Lord just like anybody else is. So this prophet gets another man to strike him and wound him. Then he goes off down the road and waits for Ahab. He disguises himself with a bandage over his eyes. By and by, Ahab passes. And the prophet cries out, (coughs) I was in the battle. Another soldier brought me a POW. He told me to guard him. If I let him get away, it would be my life for his. Or either I'd owe a ton of money, 75 pounds of silver. Well, I got busy and the prisoner escaped. The king said, you have decided your own judgment. You're the one who let him get away. You have to pay the price. (coughs) Just then... The prophet whipped off the bandage, and Ahab recognized him as a prophet. The prophet says, no, so shall your judgment be. You yourself have decided it. Thus says the Lord, because you have let slip out of your hand a man whom I appointed to utter destruction, therefore your life shall go for his life and your people for his people. Look at verse 43. So the king of Israel went to his house, sullen and displeased, and came to Samaria. That brings us to the second missed opportunity. Ahab never received the grace offered him that day. He had experienced the grace of God. Ahab had experienced the grace of God. He had experienced the power of God. He had experienced the victory of God. He hadn't been looking for it. He didn't appreciate it. And in the end, he let it slip away. I want to read you a scripture. Just listen to it. For it is impossible... For those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit 
and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance. Since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put Him to an open shame. For if the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God, but if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. The word of God's grace poured down like rain on King Ahab, but only thorns and thistles came of it. He had tasted the goodness of God, and he let it get away. And even at the end, he couldn't repent. He could only sulk in his misery. And so we see that Ben-Hadad was not the only one who got away from Ahab. Friends, the Lord Jesus, the Word of God, made flesh crucified and risen, is here. He is the grace of God. The one who came to destroy the works of the devil and give us victory. He's here. He's in His Word. Don't let him get away. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.